Hello and welcome to In Trust. My name is Rick Kitagawa. And my name is Lisa Nabar. And thanks for joining us for our show about the greatest asset for leaders, organizations, and communities alike, trust. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Carlos Bena, an award-winning animator, director, and entrepreneur whose Oscar-qualifying animated short, Lenoria, has racked up over 100 awards and has been selected for over 150 film festivals worldwide. Carlos has also worked on many animated pictures that might have captured your imagination, like Finding Nemo, The Incredibles, Ratatouille, WALL-E, and Toy Story 3, just to name a few. Carlos is also the co-founder of Animation Mentor and Artella and is currently directing Paramount Pictures' forthcoming The Tiger's Apprentice, slated for release in 2023. Carlos, thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you guys for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to dive into this conversation with you today, Carlos. And for people who are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a little bit more about who you are and the work that you do? Yes, uh, absolutely. So, so I came to the United States in the 90s. Originally, I wanted to learn uh, to study art. But early on in the 80s, I had watched a little movie called E.T. in the movie theaters that somehow that seed stuck in my head. So even as I was learning art, and I was, you know, even as I was in Spain, I was studying something completely different that had nothing to do with art or films. Or I, I think in the back of my head, I always, I, I've been always very drawn to films in general. And um, so my introduction to filmmaking came through becoming an animator in the 90s and learning more about animation. Uh, I think for the most part, both in Spain and when I came here, I didn't have the means of doing short films. At that time, you had to either do 35 or 16 or, you know, those kind of films, like you didn't have the DSLRs that now, and you can even make a movie, Max, Turbo, whatever that is. Um, so, so basically I learned animation and then I started realizing just how, kind of like how much you can do in animation. So I was an animator, uh, so I graduated from college in 98, and then from 98 through 2011, 2012, I was animating full-time first on, com on commercials and then on features, uh, both at ILM and then Pixar. And then over the course of that time, I wanted to continue telling the stories and I wanted to continue digging in into telling the stories that felt more uh, interesting, I guess, uh, for me. So I made the transition in 2013, I left Pixar and I made the transition to start doing more development work and doing more directing in general, sometimes in the smaller projects as character director, you know, in uh, Aranki, for example, or you know, like in a variety of ways, I was involved not as an animator anymore. And that's kind of like how I landed. I think during that time from leaving Pixar to now, I've been always just trying to push on what it, what it is to tell stories through the form of smaller projects, you know, and that's kind of like where I'm, where I landed now, where I'm at Paramount and I'm co-directing actually it's two of us this feature and I'm very, I'm learning so much. It's amazing, you know, 
it's an incredible experience. That's awesome. And Carlos, you've had a really, well, I'll throw in lots of monster puns because you and I both like the darker art. So you've had quite the monstrous career from, like you said, starting in commercials, going to ILM, going to then Pixar. And I also want to bring up that you, you've you also co-founded multiple companies, Animation Mentor, uh, Nightwill Pictures, Artella. And I would love to know how you think about the bridge between animation and entrepreneurship or, or starting your own venture. Right. Well, I can tell you how I started. I, to be totally transparent, I never considered myself an entrepreneur in any way, shape, or form. In fact, if you tell me about numbers, you'll go through one year and it'll come out the other year. I think it started with an initial mentor started because two of my partners, Bobby Beck and Sean Kelly, had already been talking about this idea about teaching animation through telephone. Uh, and, and I don't know, at one point it got transferred into like, hey, let's talk to Carlos because I was starting to be a lot into doing video at the time. So while I was at LM and Pixar, I was doing like little videos. I came from the, while I was studying, I was, and even growing up in Spain, I was a lot into skateboarding. So we would shoot a lot of videos and then edit, it, then edit them. So I love that part of the technology and the, and the visuals. It's just the equipment. So they asked me, like, what do you think about bringing your, your input on, on that stuff? And, um, and then we just became partners. And then from there, the online concept started, you know, so, so it was almost, it wasn't premeditated. It wasn't deliberate that I was like, I want to be a, a business partner. I want to be a, entrepreneur it was more of like you know it would be great to teach animation and doing it in a way that could be relevant for those that don't have access to it i had to move from another part of the country of the the world to study from two animators at pixar in the 90s you know so i had to do sacrifice this big part of my culture to go to another culture Otherwise, I wouldn't be here right now. I, I, I wouldn't be learning and, and talking about animation. Most likely, I think I would have still been in Spain doing God knows what. So a part of the online came from a place of like, we were quickly realizing how fast the internet was changing a lot of things. And, and it was our way of saying, well, I wonder how much we can push it to a place where both teacher and student are in their own homes whichever country they are at, and, and they get to learn, like the students get to learn from the teacher that is working professionally at a studio. And then we figure out the technology to adapt to that. And it was very crude technology at the time. I mean, keep in mind, this is pre-YouTube and Vimeo days. It's 2003. And the video dimensions couldn't be bigger than 320 to 40, which right now is like a joke. You know, it's like you have to look at it with an eyeglass. Like, what am I looking at? At the time, that's all we had. Otherwise, the servers would collapse. And, uh, and they did. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I, it went not from a place of like, hey, let's make this business together, but more from a place of, I would have loved to learn this way. And I would have loved to learn not from a classroom, 
But instead, let's take our cameras and let's go to coffee places. Let's start studying people from far away. Let's do the training and the lectures as being outside as if we were learning the way we would like to learn it. You know, I'm not crazy about classrooms. I, I would always fall asleep in a classroom and in seeing the same person with a blackboard, you know, it's just, it seems like it's pushing your patience a lot. So um, we even try, we even have footage of us in a whiteboard and a TV where we will show examples on, on, on a VHS. <laughs> um, or maybe it was already DVD, I think it was VHS. TV, VHS combo, I think that's what it was. And, uh, and we just quickly realized, you know what? We're gonna be editing all this stuff. So let's just do it the way we think it will be the most fun to learn. And, uh, and then from that, it started evolving. And then from that, what we learned about edu education, we kind of wanted to transfer that to production. So like, is there any way to do production online, you know? And then you figure out what are the, what are the limitations and you figure out what resources and, Everything else comes, but it, but it starts from a question and it starts from a, from that goal of like, Hey, wouldn't it be great to do this? I love this, Carlos. And I think there's a theme here that I maybe just want to name and it's, or a couple of themes I want to say is that one pushing to the edges and that question you just asked, wouldn't it be great to do this? And really pioneering in your field, new ways to collaborate and connect and learn together. And I think this is a topic that's so relevant to so many people, not just the animation and the filmmaking industry, but all around the world right now as teams and organizations have had to adapt to different ways of working really quickly and are trying to define what that means for them moving forward as well. And I'm wondering if there's some lessons in your work that they can take into what they're doing. And I want to specifically bring up Lenoria in this because it's such a beautiful film. And Rick was talking about just the, all the awards that it's won, the recognition of receiving many best animated short and best short film awards as well. And that truly was an international collaboration where you push the edges in so many different ways. So I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about how collaboration and teamwork were so instrumental in the making of Lenoria. Yes, um, it really was the only way to make that film because at the time there, there was and time, times are changing right now, but at the time, we're talking 2010, 2011, there was not a studio that would have put money to do something that was so dark, I guess. Uh, and, and so, you know, right now with animation in particular, there's always that sense of like, if there's not returns, we won't invest. And that's, that makes all the sense in the world. You know, it's, it's not a good business model if it doesn't, return the money but the returns of this film were not financial they never were intended to be uh, so all the money that was put onto this film was in hopes to do something that gave us a lot of emo emotional returns if i can put it that way like more personal satisfaction of doing something we would always love to see and it really started from a place of, you know, for me, it was going back to college, like, you know, and, and my art. I was always very driven to like dark art, you know, and I love the H.R. Geiger, uh, the Sinsky. I, I love the, there's a lot of uh, different people, Rom. And I was always thinking, wow, it would be great to see all this in 3D and to see it in animation. But 
only anime is doing any of that stuff. You know, a lot of the Western animation is not even coming close. So I remember very specifically watching, watching TV at home. I was by myself. And then I saw a trailer for a horror film, you know, and, and I forgot which one it was, but I do remember very clearly thinking after that trailer finished, thinking, why don't, why don't we get to do that in animation? What is stopping us? Like, what, like why, did, why do they get to have that fun? And we don't. And I was finding myself complaining about that in the following weeks. You know, I'm complaining. I'm talking to friends and it's like, yeah, like, you know, animation is always treated for kids. And then I quickly realized that um, I was part of the, that problem. You know, I was becoming a complainer. And um, it's very easy to complain and it's very easy to point out what's not working. It's really hard to do something about it. Yeah. So in this case, um, I was like, well, Carlos, you have all these ideas you have a, you know you're big in complaining about it why don't you do something about it and 12 years later with half my savings gone but we finished the short and I, I'm glad that I'm able to talk to that guy that was sitting on the bed watching that trailer and going like okay well at least, at least we tried it you know so in order to do that there was not a studio, that was a big tangent I just went to, you know, but it was just the genesis of it. Uh, in order to do that, there wasn't a studio that was willing to get behind something of this kind of sensibility or tone, like darker tone. So, so in my head, I hadn't put, put together how that would have worked, but I was like, if we've been able to kind of like teach and, and educate people online, there's got to be a way to make these movies online. And we didn't know how just yet. In fact, I remember uh, talking to my partners at Animation Mentor, because that was a big part of how, why Lanoria ended up happening even, is because we talked about what would it take to create an online pipeline system that covers storage, covers, com covers communication, covers version control, having all the files talking to one another. In animation, you need the models to talk to the rigging, to talk to the animation. You put that in shots, then you have somebody editing it. So there were so many like unknowns. And I have to say, every time that there is a lot of unknowns, that's exciting to me. Getting into a territory where I don't know what's going to happen is fun. Until there's no money, then it's no fun. <laughs> but there was definitely an excitement. And I think that was very much shared by my partners, Bobby and Sean. And I remember meeting at a diner and talking about all this. And it's like, well, then let's use, let's have the short film as a proof of concept that we can do that. And that started in 2011 for three years while I was working on the story with people like Eve and Sasha. Parallel to that, we were trying to figure out this technical pipeline. And there was a lot of things that would break constantly. So it was like this thing that at some point, it just kind of like started clicking. So it really was out of necessity to do an online production because we didn't have a studio first that we could do it. And at the same time, we were very interested in figuring out if this could even work. So when the pandemic actually happened and 
as so many people had to switch to Zoom, it was such a, it was so great to see people embracing the, the, the online in a similar way that for us, we saw it years in advance, the potential of it, you know? And, and I'll say just on a side note, the fact that this pandemic happened is for me and being able to work from home is allow me to actually spend so much extra time with our baby over the last year. If I was at the studio and I would be leaving the studio like, you know, 7, 8 p.m., I would always miss the last part of the day of my baby. So, so there's, there's been a lot of positives to trying to do that. That's a really long answer, but I, I, I don't know if that, has, if that helps. That totally does. And what I'm hearing is just one, I think the magical Carlos magic of being able to sit with that uncertainty and thrive in it. And both with Animation Mentor and Artella, what I'm hearing is that you really built these out of necessity or out of this one need that you saw missing in the world. And that's why you went out and built it. And I think because you were really intentional with that and you had a reason why, I think that's why both your ventures have been so successful. And, and that goes from filmmaking to the companies that you've built. And I would love to know just in general, I think there's a lot of leaders out there who do not like uncertainty and who are very scared of not having, you know, go, ha, take, tackling a problem where you really could go anywhere because it's never been done before. And I would love to know, how have you found trust to play into your work, whether that's trust in yourself or with your partners and the teams that you build? Trust is, a, is such a complex word. I think with my, with my partners, that trust came from an early friendship that we developed in the, in the mid-90s. So we had already been in contact for so many years since we met each other at a school. And even back in the school, we were learning from one another. So it was almost like a nice extension of like, we've been learning from one another. Then we've been professional animators for several years. Now let's figure out a way if we can actually teach what we know together as well. So that the trust in that relationship, it came from a, a strong friendship that to this day is still very strong. And when we were thinking about teaching animation, it was always, it, it always came from a place of like, it's not like we know everything that is about animation, because that's never the idea. But at least what we do know, we'll share it. I, I just feel like there's nothing worse than, than like, I know all these things, but I want to keep it from you. Because like, there's a competitiveness in the industry that is, can be very dangerous. I always feel like it's the other way around. Like, it could, like if you share what you know, the people that you're sharing what you know, they might actually help you in the future. You know, like if, if you are in a, in a hole somewhere, you know, the, the people that you lend a hand early on, they might lend you a hand. You know, the person that I taught animation like 15 years ago might be my boss uh, in, in five more years. You know, like you just never know how life is going to operate. 
so that that was the that was the the, the the trust with Bobby and Sean, and it is still today. We know our strengths and we know our weaknesses, and we play off those. And then in the industry, like for example, like at, at Pixar, it's not like you start at a company, and this happened both at Pixar and ILM and in other places, and you are working with brand new people. So there's always a process of proving yourself. You know, there's always a process of like working your ass off until the people that you're working with, they know that they can rely on you. And that has worked in some cases and that hasn't worked in other cases. There's been other cases, you know, that I, I work on projects and that trust just really wasn't there. So there, there was no point in continuing forward. But for example, at a place like Pixar, it's not like I started at Pixar and from the very beginning, they gave me amazing material to work from. It was actually very small shots, you know, and I'm very happy that it worked out that way because it removes a little bit of that already very strong pressure that you have when working at a place like Pixar, you know? So it was great for me, I guess, trust-wise, just to be kind of like more of a fly in the wall for a while as I, as I continue learning what these amazing animators surrounding me were already doing. And then doing the transition from animator to director, trust is definitely been an area of learning for me because sometimes uh, you have certain expectations and, and you want to get to those expectations very fast, you know? And sometimes you forget that there is an evolution and there is a learning process for people to get to where you are at in the film. People that just start, like, you know, they, they have to get to that place. And sometimes I get very impatient that way, actually. So it's been, for me, when it comes to, to trust, it's been a, a learning process of, of being like, you know what, let's, let's be hands off on this. And especially when you have been doing things independently, and now, for example, now I'm working on a larger studio and I have to be very hands-on on other things. It's been an education for me because I'm used to like, okay, like what else, you know, do we have to work on? Okay, uh, I want to be there with the artists on the trenches. So I'll jump in there. You know, I, I, don't, I don't do well being that person that I'm just sitting on the couch. All right, y'all do this stuff. I'll just speak <laughs> Like, I don't, my brain doesn't operate that way. I'm always thinking about well, how can we make this better and how can we push this? So yeah, trust is, is a very, it's a very powerful word and it's a very powerful concept. And I feel like, you know, it makes all the sense in the world when you see these directors re, uh, working again over and over with the specific people because they have connected in a specific ways, that becomes a shortcut in the next project. You know, like you already know how you work with that person. You already know that person knows your expectations. You already know uh, the expectations. So that part, I feel like that's part of that trust. It's just getting to a place where you don't even have to think about whether it will work out or not. You know it will work out. And any areas of figuring things out, you are figuring them out together. But you already have that connection with, uh, you know, somebody on your team, your producer, like with Sasha, for example, on Lanoria, there were so many shortcuts already because for a few years, we were kind of like getting to know each other. So she already knew very fast what 
what worked and what didn't for me. And she knew which places uh, she needed to pick me up and she knew which other places she needed to leave me alone. And that, to me, that's a huge part of trust. I'd love to explore this a little bit more with you, Carlos, because I think this is such an interesting an interesting area or interesting field where trust is manifesting. And especially your work is at this intersection of creativity, innovation, and imagination, which and always pushing the edges and the boundaries. And that means you have to explore a lot. And the things when you're exploring is sometimes you're going to go down past and they're going to be dead ends, or you're going to have to come back and backtrack. And in this industry as well, that's really competitive. And you were talking about people having to come in and prove themselves. It makes me think there might be this fear for people sometimes that like they're scared of going down the wrong path, or they may be a little bit conservative when it comes to sharing ideas in the space because they don't want to look foolish or look wrong or waste people's time in this space. So I'm curious, how do you, as a leader, like you are as a director, how do you cultivate an environment for a team where it's okay to take risks and it's okay to try things out that might not work because you've got this long-term vision of that it's those risks that are going to lead to the biggest payoffs for us. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's a question. That's, uh, I really feel like life goes by so fast. Like you don't want to have, I don't want to be at a place where it's like, ah, I didn't try that. Like the, that, that whole concept of like, hmm, I could have tried that. And, but I didn't. That will hunt me <laughs> to no end. And so the connection of being fearful, which is such a normal, concept of of, uh, of not trying to do something so much that you know you hit that dead end I think you always have to balance that somehow with with like um not putting all your cards on it like I don't know if that makes any sense like basically if if you can be practical or smart about how much you can risk without going homeless <laughs> uh, or or taking care of the people you love or or still covering your mortgage you know like when i left pixar uh, there, there was a there was a couple of people that actually made me second guess that decision because you know i left pixar like shortly after toy story 3 it was at a big peak in my career as an animator and i had the best time in a film and i and I, 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 have, I have been learning so much. And so to, to leave Pixar, it really wasn't a, an easy decision. At the time, I didn't have kids, you know, and at the time I was actually, I was by myself. So I didn't, I wasn't in a relationship and I had all this money saved. So I was like, if I'm going to do something stupid, I must, I, I should do it now. You know, I have all these savings if something doesn't happen, at least it'll, it'll help me survive until I get another job somewhere. I don't know if I can actually do that, for example, right now, having a daughter. You know, so you kind of have to like wait where you are at and how much you can just try something with a free state of mind. You know, it's like literally it's like jumping off a cliff and not knowing if that, if that parachute is going to open or not. You know, so you can, so I, as I would say before that, just make sure you open and close the parachute a bunch of times because you don't want to make sure that you're about to hit the floor and find like, hey, I, I forgot the parachute at home. How about that? 
So it's, it's, it's tricky. And this industry, especially in animation, because it's so expensive, of course, there's going to be fears, uh, you know? And of course, there's going to be moments where you don't want to disrupt something that has worked nicely for a long time. But then again, I think it's a double sword because when things are too easy for too long, there's always, as an artist, you know, I think my, my, the, the artist part of my head is a little stubborn. It's always going to be like, well, but there's all these other things that you could be learning right now. There's all these other things that you could be doing. So are you just there just because it's comfortable and you, and you want to make sure you are covered life-wise? So it's always going to be that push and pull. You know, you're always going to have the two little guys. And they're like, okay, it's time to go now. No, no, it's just stay there, save more money for many more years. No, forget that guy. No, let's just jump now. You know, you want it. <laughs> so, yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's impulse. You know, sometimes it's just, it's just kind of like what your instinct tells you was right. You know, I always... Uh, if I listened to my heart, I would have done a lot of stupid decisions. If I listened to my head, I would have been so conservative and so plain and safe that I wouldn't have done nothing, none of the things that I have done. For me, I feel like the, my instinct is the one that listens to both and somehow mediates between these two forces, pulling from being smart and being careful to just doing something that my passion and my heart tells me to jump and do it. Every person's situation is going to be different. If I had three, four kids, at that point, my savings, that, now they have to go towards somebody else. It's not just about me anymore. I appreciate that so much, Carlos, because I think what I'm hearing is this level of nuance. And I think it's easy for people to get on a podcast or get on it, be interviewed and say like, oh, like you should just go and follow your heart, right? And then you have the other people who are like, make sure you just save. And I don't think there's a lot of people articulating how that it's all, it's so personal that it's almost impossible realistically to give sound advice because you really do have to make these choices for yourself. And I think it's coming down to, like you said, making sure you can take risks that not counting on the risk to pan out in the way that you can say like, oh, okay, well, like I have enough savings. If this doesn't work out, maybe I'll go back to a, to getting a job or if, you know, building in a safety net, if you were, or the parachute. And so with that, I would love to push you to dig in a little bit more to how do you know that balance? Like, where have you found that trust in yourself to be able to, to mediate those two very different parts of yourself, which I think especially creatives struggle with often of, do I go the safe route or do I cut a new path? It's so hard to tell, to be honest, because with everything, like with Animation Mentor, the Nartella, the Lanoria, Nightwood Pictures now, it's been always coming from a place of wanting to I don't know, I need to do what feels right at that moment, given the tools and given the, 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 the context that you are at. Like, I'm wondering, we were now, and we were to do a, an animation mentor, I don't know if I would be on the same headspace as I was 20 years ago, you know, or seven, 17 years ago, uh, where you're younger and you, there's 
other areas that that so it's, that one is a tough one to answer like what's what's the deciding factor on it and i think again i think it's it's listening to a little bit of both for me like with lanoria i'll tell you the deciding factor with lanoria it was very easy it was i had a conversation with pixar and pixar was so cool about hey you can take a leave of absence you know and then come back you know and and to me, if they wouldn't have said that, I would have tripled think my decision of even leaving a studio and an environment that millions of people would have died to be at. So because they gave me that reassurance, it, it allowed me to be like, okay, well, then I, I guess I can actually take a little bit of that risk. And that was cemented when I had artwork pieces from two artists, one of them being Eve, Skylar, that they had done pieces of artwork believing on this story that I was still half chewing in my head, you know, but because at that point, a couple of total strangers believe and trusted me on this film, that made me go, well, now I have to, now I have to do this film. It's not just something that you just have ideas and you write them on your phone and they just leave as random small log lines or small little treatments. Now it's something that I pitched it to a couple of people and they were like, oh, like, oh actually, I want to do something to help you. And I'm going to do it out of my free time that is very valuable, Carlos. So to me, I took that being very important that these strangers took free time of their probably already busy lives to help me with something. So that was the, the mark. That was the, the combination of Pixar telling me like, like you're okay, you know, at the time, you know, now I'm, I'm probably like the slowest animator ever in, on earth. But at the time it was nice to hear like, yes, you can take that time and we'll be here, you know, uh, after a year, a year and a half. And then combine that with uh, the Lanoria artists. And that was what made me want to go, okay, now I'm going to jump. I'm, I'm able to have some sort of safety net and my passion and my heart after looking at this artwork is, is really firing on all cylinders. So I, uh, it's a, a bunch of different factors, you know, and again, like just you said, Rick, it depends on every person separately. You know, I don't know what the situation of other people will be, but at the time that was my situation. So. Thanks for sharing that, Carlos. And I think a couple takeaways of what you shared too is just the support from Pixar and knowing you could go back to a place that you, you really loved ultimately and had a chance to work with some amazing creators and make some amazing projects. And then also these other artists like Eve and Sasha who were just enamored by your, your vision, even as it was still it was still unfolding and the trust that they put in you as well, them extending trust in you gave you that trust in yourself a little bit to explore this as a real venture. And I just, I want to name, because it still, frankly, blows my mind in thinking about Lenoria as an example of this and just how much you were pushing the edges. So pushing the edges of genre when it comes to animation and in bringing horror into the space, which was really new, but also the way that Lenoria was, was made and looking at doing this outside of a studio as this truly international collaboration where you were literally building the technology out to be able to do this, I think is so, so cool. And 
I mean, you were clearly ahead of your time, especially looking at 2020 and the pandemic, where a lot of organizations had to figure this out for themselves and accelerate what they thought was maybe five or 10 years away and do that in a matter of days. And there's still a lot of organizations and leaders that we're talking to who are still trying to figure this out, you know, what this means for the future as they're kind of acknowledging or realizing that moving forward, they're going to shift fully to remote or hybrid environments and ways of working. And I just, I'd love to know from your experience as really a pioneer in this space and one of the leaders in this space, what practical advice would you offer leaders at organizations who are trying to build this trust and supportive environment to be highly collaborative and highly innovative in these remote or hybrid contexts? Yeah. So when it comes to remote collaboration, one of the things that we found was you're not there with the people. So, and, you know, we couldn't really, we had a fraction of the budget that you have in a regular studio. So we didn't have the incentive or the, the financial motivation for a, a giant part of the, of the crew. Like we just didn't have money and, and budget that you would need for a, animated production. So you hope that they like the material enough that they want to work on that on their free time. That was on our experience. And even that, we still don't know. There were many cases where you just don't know how much work uh, you get just because it was, it was collaborative, but also it was voluntary for the most part. You know, there were certain areas that I had to put some money just so that the film wouldn't take another 30 more years to make, you know, just to speed it up. So I would work in some places, then I would save money. And then Sasha and I would try to be strategic about, okay, well, that area is, is creating a bottleneck, you know, so we need to like work on that. And so let's just, and uh, so I think for remote collaborations, it's a lot more different than when you see the people at a studio every day. And, and they, they are attending the studio and they are being there versus being on their homes and you just don't know, are they doing work or are they not? That part is a giant trust piece. And I think, I think what we found was, you know, we had somebody named Mario Grilli, you know, that helped us gigantically in keeping track of what the artists were doing, you know, even, you know, while they were at their homes. Um, because you still do need some sort of a schedule. You need some sort of person tracking, like, okay, you're at home, you're remote. We don't care what you do at your home. You can use your pajamas. But from at this Friday or two weeks from now or a month from now, this is what we are talking that you are going to give us. And then the person says yes. And then you, you figure it out that way. And again, I, you know, it depends on the type of work, on the type of industry. But for us, we had to really factor in the fact that this was voluntary work. So we couldn't even treat it as a regular production because, you know, people had their own full-time jobs too. And that's why it extended the production for so many years. I cannot expect to go to somebody helping me out of their own will and, you know, to be like, well, tomorrow, forget your family. You are, you are delivering tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> a person would be like, you know, the hell with you. Yeah. So, and it's still, and it still, it wasn't the, the easiest experience, you know. There's a lot of things that didn't work. There was a lot of things that 
we didn't know if we would even fin have a finished film at the end. Uh, like technically speaking, like a lot of things broke. So we found ourselves halfway through the process, not knowing that we're going to be able to render this film at all. So I think trust when in remote collaborations comes, uh, there's an education towards that trust, you know, and, and learning how can you gain that trust without making people feel like you're micromanaging them, you know, or you are checking like, what are they doing at their home every five minutes? Because that, that's no way to work either, you know? So, um, so it's, it's, it's a tight, it's, it's a fine line for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing maybe the sweet spot is accountability, but also giving the workers or the collaborators the trust that they're going to do their jobs on time. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, here's the schedule, but also I'm going to give you a lot of leeway. How what, what you do until then doesn't matter, but we just need to have product X on this date. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because, and, and also to, to a degree, freedom for, especially on the artist industry, freedom for the artist to work in whichever way works best for, for he or she. Like, I'll tell you the, in my case, during the 2000s, I wasn't a morning person. I just wasn't. So I would get to Pixar, you know, like at nine in the morning. And from nine in the morning until 11 in the morning, I would be staring at emails or staring at the screen and not even moving a mouse. I, I just, my, my brain wasn't, I was, I was on a Spanish time. So then I would just stay later. You know, so I would stay later. So people would go home, you know, but at a particular time, I usually would stay uh, later that night. And what I found was at one point, like, Pixar gave me the trust to, to be like, well, we don't care what time you come. You know, we don't care what time you leave. Can you give us that shot by the Friday or the following Friday or whatever, you know? And then you figure out your schedule. You figure out when you come to work. So for me, that was, Incredible. That didn't happen right after I got there. That happened like after a couple, two, three years. But that allowed me to plan my artistic brain, you know, in such a way that then I would actually come to work a little later, like between 10 and 11. And then I would leave work later in the day than usual. So to me, that was great because then it's basically the studio telling me like, okay, you as an artist, your brain works in a particular way. So you uh, make that work for you. So to me, I feel like that's also part of it, you know, and I think it's very industry specific, you know, like artists' brains are probably going to work different than lawyers' brains and they're going to be working different than accountants, like who knows. So that, that's something to take into consideration, the, the, the industry and the, the part of the brain that you're using. Is it the left or the right? I love that because I think that's really just a simple practical consideration a lot of organizations can take. And I can say, I know a lot of lawyers as well who aren't really morning people either. And they would appreciate that kind of flexibility. And um, I spent a lot of time working with scientists and a lot of them weren't morning people either and would come in later in the day and stay later and um, seeing them at their peak and where they were at their best with their energy. They really appreciated having that kind of autonomy. In there. So some kind of words that jump out to me are that, that accountability piece that Rick was talking about, that autonomy, that freedom that comes into it and just meeting people where they are and supporting people and being their best selves. 
in those kind of spaces too. Yeah. I love, I feel like that's a really great place to kind of wrap things up, but I want to give you the opportunity. I know there's a lot of things you can't talk about in your industry, but is there something that's coming up for you that you can talk about that might be of interest to our listeners? Well, um, I'm, I'm at a place right now where after finishing Lanoria, I, I got really excited in terms of like doing more of that, like doing more like that kind of like telling more like different kind of stories. And that's kind of like what my head has been since finishing Lanoria. That's kind of like what I'm at. I mean, this in this industry, you just kind of like, you kind of put all your eggs in one basket to a degree, like, because when you are developing or trying to direct, like you are basically, it's like, it's like the lottery. You can be like developing 10 projects and you are lucky if one of them is you, you get to pitch it. You know what I mean? Or one out of 10 projects maybe is interesting to a particular student. You just don't know. So what I have been doing for the last two, three years is just continue developing more and more ideas and see if one clicks for a particular place. And in the meantime, uh, it's been great to, to work on the production with Paramount because I used to work at Paramount like eight years ago. It was a different place with different leadership and, and that has changed It's become a different place altogether. I feel very fortunate to have a boss that, that she really trusts what we are trying to do on this film. And we never take that for granted, you know, it's, and that's kind of like part of what you were talking about, that trust, like where we, we throw in a lot of different, you know, like uh, ideas on like, hey, we could do it like, like this. And some of them are risks. So to have a boss that understands that it could be a risk and still support you, to me, that separates it from 95% of other companies. So that's been particularly amazing. And um, I don't know if there's <laughs> much more interesting stuff that I can talk about other than that. All good, my friend. I think that's plenty interesting, to be honest. So, Carlos, this has been amazing. Uh, where can people find out about you, your films? We'll have a bunch of links to you. You mentioned tons of artists and other creative, amazing people in this interview. We'll link to all of them. But where should people go to find more about you, Lenoria, and any of the other projects you're on? Yeah, so I do have a website. I had a website for, for, a, for a long time. I don't update it that often, um, but uh, it's, it's just basically carlosvaena.com. And then the other places, you know, Animation Mentor, you can go to animationmentor.com with uh, Lanoria. I think we have it on lanoriafilm.com if people want to see the short. They need to see the short. It's so good. Thank you. Yeah, it's, there were so many good moments on that short. And the whole experience, including the ups and downs, that uh, I think it comes through when you watch it. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I, I would say like those places. And I don't know if I'm missing you. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for joining us today, Carlos. We'll link to those and a whole bunch of other references that you made in this interview as well in the show notes. And thanks for making the time for us. This was a total treat. It is my pleasure. Thank you guys for, for doing this. Absolutely. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Trust is better together. So if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with someone who you think might appreciate it. And don't forget to leave us a review. The In Trust podcast is produced by Spotlight Trust. 
where we help leaders and organizations put trust at the center of their work so that they can achieve more than they ever thought possible while adapting to our fast-changing world. If you'd like to get in touch with us, simply email podcast at spotlighttrust.com. And now, a quick word from our sponsors. There's a lot of uncertainty about the future, but one thing we are sure about is that the future is trust. Conveniently, this also happens to be the title of our new book. The Future is Trust, Embracing the Era of Trust Center Leadership is being released later this spring. Rick and I are so excited to bring this reimagination of what a leadership book can be. Stay up to date on book launch details, special previews, exclusive pre-order specials, and more by visiting thefutureistrust.com.